It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This is about giving Canadians an opportunity to weigh in at a really pivotal time. Conservatives are united. We are the only option. And saying to people that are separatists in Alberta, don't waste your time with the Maverick Party. We need a party that isn't left or right, but just true north. You are no ally and you are no feminist. So many people are wondering why this selfish summer election. Justin Trudeau wants to grab power. This is a historic moment we are living through. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and the most important, historic, consequential election of our lives. Today on the show, will the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan start a conversation about Canada's role in the world? And affordability, is it an election buzzword or do any of the parties actually have a plan? Joining me today, our first ever Manal, a panel of men, a bunch of really, really smart dudes. We've got Drew Brown, editor-in-chief at The Independent. What's up? We've got Jason Markasov, contributor at McLean's. Is it too late to leave on principle and give my spot to a woman? <laughs> and we've got Jessica Sandu, senior consultant at Crestview Strategies and co-founder of Boz News. Three dudes giving hot takes they have no qualifications for. So this is a real breakthrough to the mainstream of Canadian media. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to you all. We're in week two of Canada's 44th election. God help us. So let's get into it. The 
only person who's going to be responsible for the merciless murder of the interpreters in Afghanistan. That will be only and only the leader of this country, and that's going to be Justin Trudeau. I can assure you we have given uh, the authorizations for the folks on the ground to make the right decisions to help as many people as possible, given the risks of this. So in case you missed it, the day Justin Trudeau announced the election, the Taliban took control of most of Afghanistan. Since then, we've all been squabbling about whether Trudeau should have dropped the writ, how much time he's dedicating to dealing with the situation over there, and his promises to bring in 21,000 Afghan refugees, who had already been processed before this crisis even started. Our entire response has been mired in confusion, delay, and an information blackout. The Canadian Armed Forces finally made it to Kabul last Thursday to help conduct evacuations. The federal government has since confirmed that 12 flights carrying more than 1,100 people have been flown out of Afghanistan so far. This was reported by Global News' Emerald Bensadoun. Groups working to get Afghans to Canada have reported that processing by immigration authorities has been slow, with a lot of unclear or unsafe directions. On the ground, people have been told to wear red if they're waiting on a Canadian plane and yell Canada. But as we learned from Global's Mercedes Stevenson and a powerful piece by Kevin Newman, a former foreign correspondent in Afghanistan, he wrote on the line that no one heard them and they were left behind. As we're recording, CBC's Ashley Burke reported Canada's Special Operations Forces have been and continue to work outside the gates of the airport in Kabul to help get Canadians and eligible Afghans through the security gates to get on board planes. Immigration Minister Marco Mendicino said Canada is exhausting every effort and will do whatever it takes to get eligible Afghans on flights. Meanwhile, after the first week of the campaign trail, liberals experienced a polling slump on a day where they were hounded by questions about the ongoing crisis in Afghanistan. Jessica, and given where we are now, week two of the election, do you think Afghanistan will become an even bigger campaign issue? It needs to become a bigger campaign issue as far as I'm concerned. I come with this issue with some background and I've been privy to a lot of conversations involving Afghanistan and the state of Afghanistan over the years uh, in my capacity at the World Sick Organization. And, and a lot of folks... They're still trying to play nice, but the frustrations that they're experiencing have been real frustrations over the years with the Canadian government and, and how they see Afghanistan, starting with like this kind of idea that you know democracy was thriving in the country or that communities were safe. But then also just like this bureaucratic type mentality when dealing with the issue. Uh, and it just shows that Canada is not a serious country when it comes to international affairs and our ability to help people around the world. And we love to pat ourselves on the back, uh, but like the logistical capabilities of this country and the ability to break free from like bureaucratic shackles to just get things done when there's no time for paperwork is something that this country is just incapable of doing. And what we're seeing in Afghanistan today is a manifestation of all of that. And it really does need to become an issue, not just for interpreters and uh, those that support the Canadian Armed Forces and how we've kind of left them hanging, but also on this commitment of the 21,000. I really do hope this is something that Canadians uh, hold up and ask their government, you know, what were we doing? Why are we so bad at this? And we're bad at this relative to other countries in Afghanistan right now. And uh, again, going back to the Afghan Sikh Hindu issue, it's become very clear to us, like from sources on the ground, that Canada is just not pulling its weight like it's not doing enough uh, and it can easily do more but it just won't this bureaucratic mentality is probably a lot to do with it jason theoretically afghanistan 
could be an opportunity for the major leaders to talk about their forward-looking foreign policy vision for Canada. But in the past week, we've seen Justin Trudeau struggle to lay out a plan. Erin O'Toole's conservative platform has a nice broad claim that says Canada's foreign policy is more important now than it has been in a generation, but it has no specifics about how to make it that. They were, however, the first to say they wouldn't recognize the Taliban as a legitimate government, which forced Justin Trudeau to say the same. The NDP is also vague. What are your assessments of the responses to Afghanistan so far, Jason? Do any of the parties have a well-articulated foreign policy plan? Not really. And I think it's born out of the tradition among many, many issues that are not spoken about seriously in elections. Foreign policy is not one of those. And this is a tricky one. You would think on this issue that the guy who's putting himself up in advertisements as I wore fatigues and smiled in a helicopter, Aaron O'Toole, the former Air Force navigator, uh, would be making his mark on this. But he's not. Nobody really is. And I think that's because this is particularly Afghanistan is a particularly tricky issue to engage about. The last thing that Aaron O'Toole wants to do, I believe, is be seen as a guy who says, I want to bring back a military operation. I want to bring us back to try to overtake the Taliban, that I want to invest more Canadian armed forces and potentially more casualties in this foreign operation that we spent seven years and without a clear eventual exit strategy. So that's tricky for him. For Jagmeet Singh, the NDP has never been uh, strong and active or vocal on foreign affairs. And that leaves Trudeau. Defense has been a weak point for him. It's been a mess domestically in the Department of Defense because of the sexual assault and harassment issue and uh, Harjit Sajjan's very lackluster, to put it nicely, um, performance on that. You know, they like to talk about that sweet spot of peacekeeping. Of course, this is not a place for peacekeeping uh, right now. There is no peace to keep. So this is kind of a bit of a Bermuda Triangle of a foreign affairs policy. It's interesting how you framed all of that, Jason, because one of the things I've been wondering is what exactly are we on the world right now? You know, Noah Richler wrote uh, a great um, piece in The Globe that in the past 20 years, and I'm quoting now, Canada has migrated from soft power to powerlessness to being meaningless players in a turbulent world that needs the disparaged prior version of us. Shame on us. Drew, what is Canada's obligation to the world right now? What do we want Canada to be? I am sort of partial to the kind of like, I guess, like personian ideal of we should be fighting fewer wars and keeping more peace, I think, is definitely a good way to to frame it. What that looks like in the world right now is definitely unclear because I think we are in the midst of some really major geopolitical shifts. We've gone from a bipolar world to a unipolar world, and I think now we're sort of emerging back into this kind of like 19th century great power, great game stuff between the, you know, the NATO bloc, let's say, and Russia and China. So it's not really clear where Canada necessarily fits into this, except in maybe sort of a supporting role. But it's also not really clear where, you know, the United States of America fits into this anymore. This is a symptom of like American imperial decline to kind of like catastrophically lose this 20-year war and have nothing really to come out of it except like chaos. And we piggybacked on that. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much, right? Like, which was going great when that was all going great. And the Americans seemed to sort of be like, Uh, in it for the long haul. It's also, like, ultimately, like, it's not even clear, like, 
why we were even in Afghanistan in the first place. Like there have been many rationalizations over the past 20 years, most recently on humanitarian grounds. But other than sort of like a weird post 9-11 revenge fantasy, it's not really clear why any of this happened. I think you can probably give a more cynical reading that this was clearly like an imperial play for control of, you know, uh, a good geopolitical location, oil infrastructure, the world's heroin supply. Um, and now to look at the headlines, various rare earth minerals, and to make a bunch of like military and engineering contractors really rich. But it doesn't really seem to have been for the benefit of the people of Afghanistan. To come back to Noah Richler's point, that's kind of like, yeah, Canada has kind of lost its way in terms of like what we're even doing and how we appear to people around the world versus what we once were and maybe what we should be trying to get back to. It's nice to hear you talk about the history because um, it was Jean Chrétien, right, who pledged Canadian support post 9-11. He basically just called up George W. Bush and then we entered Afghanistan in October 2001. And since then, uh, our relationship with America, I think, has changed. Our relationship with the world has changed and not enough effort is being placed to figure this out. So, you know, related to that, Joe Biden announced last week that there's going to be an emergency meeting with G7 leaders. What do we think needs to happen at this meeting? I mean, Justin Trudeau is, as we've said in past episodes, he's now the wise guy who's been on every meeting more than any of the (laughs) others around the table. Do we think he's going to have a voice in this meeting at all? Shouldn't he have called it? (laughs) Yeah, you would think that. But I guess uh, I think that sort of showcases that like it doesn't necessarily matter how long any specific individual leader is sitting at the G7 table as much as like the nations in question at the G7 table. The United States still certainly runs that show. I'm sure they'll let Canada do the symbolic leadership cosplay. But uh, I don't really think that that's Canada's show to run at this point in time. No one takes Canada seriously. Right? Like, what are the actual capabilities of this country? We're, we're seeing it uh, front and center here in uh, Afghanistan, where we have no mechanisms in place. We, we don't have muscle in place. We don't have the political will to do courageous things. We lack uh, in our capabilities compared to our allies. And Afghanistan, I think, more than anything else, has made that more clear. And this is not me like deriding the individual bravery of whether it's our our troops or those that are kind of ushering the evacuation. I'm talking about as a government, as our bureaucracy, as people that are kind of making the decision 10,000 feet in the air, we just don't have the guts for it. And other countries have noticed. Uh, And again, this is coming from a place where I've been privy to these conversations that are happening on the ground right now, as far as the evacuation goes, as far as like getting out of a further controlled Taliban Afghanistan, people look at Canada and shrug on their shoulders and say, well, we, we can't rely on them. And it, quite frankly, it's embarrassing. And we, we just lack at the ability to punch uh, even at our weight or above it. I think this episode has reminded us of our weight in the world, especially our military weight. In the G7, we're a runt country. We always were. We are not one of the mightiest economies. We're not one of the, certainly not one of the mightiest militaries. And we never, we never were. We never have been. I don't think we ever aspire to. There are some out there, certainly now, who are kind of reminiscing about that time that we were punching above our weight to some extent in uh, Afghanistan. But keep in mind, we weren't punching above our weight in the whole of Afghanistan, certainly not in Kabul. We were punching above our weight. We were doing well in holding Kandahar, which is where most of our interpreters and our former resources and allies were, uh, not Kabul. So we are strategically in a terrible place to support the people that matter to us. But again, like if this was a G7 conversation about 
advanced economies, monetary policy, perhaps uh, we'd be okay. If it was about climate, uh, we'd have some legs to stand on. If it's about a lot of other diplomatic things or COVID handling, maybe. But on military, we are small. We are a, a middle power. And to Kevin Newman's piece uh, in the line, we're not performing to the level of France for good reason. We're not a military power like France. The other thing I would kind of mention in this is let's take a long view. If we thought about how things were going in the first week or first month or first year of the Afghanistan conflict after 2001 started, uh, we'd be saying a very different thing had we been talking about it later on. But Jason, counterpoint, we've been in Afghanistan for 20 years. But we've been out of it for seven years and nobody is doing really great in this. Like certainly nobody's patting Joe Biden on his on his back on this. I just feel like that's kind of a cop-out, right? Like I don't want us to kind of peg ourselves at the failures of other people. Again, it was naive to believe that things were good in Afghanistan. And there's been folks and like nonprofits banging at the door of government since 2016, since I've been involved, saying things are not good there. We, we need to do more to evacuate or bring over folks. And some of the responses we used to get ranged from, well, you know, if we pull out these minorities, you know, that may uh, offend the Afghan government to, you know, things are really good there uh, and they're not necessarily in trouble to, well, you know, the Taliban are not, you know, threats uh, that are going to blow out of proportion and we won't be able to control. And you would get like this type of chatter back or different variations of it for almost four or five years now. Well, we kind of saw this escalating year over year over year. And there's been a lot of conversation on failed intelligence. And yeah, the Americans are not doing a good job of it. No one has done a good job of it. But at the end of the day, you know, we're in a position to criticize and critique the Canadian government. I look back uh, when the Syrian refugee crisis was happening and our government kind of stood to the plate it made this pledge and it set the pace for the rest of the world. Why have we not been able to do that again and again and again? If we want a place in this world, maybe that's it. For me, I mean, I'm originally from Pakistan. So like I'm close to this country and I'm I'm trying very hard not to not to get too deep into the political history of it all. But Canada has always assumed a welcoming, safe haven kind of approach. And that seems missing right now. And that's what's concerning to me. And and to bring it back to the election, given that we have a huge immigrant population here, and I have done many stories about Afghan refugees who have been here for decades and are one of the largest refugee groups in this country who still have very, very strong ties to their home country, who still have family members in that home country, isn't it reasonable to expect all the leaders in the midst of an election, to also not just talk about how they're going to figure out this global issue, but also how they're going to protect the community that they're inviting and that they've always invited over time. If we care about the rest of the world, as we say, shouldn't we be hearing more of that on the election campaign? I hate to be the cynical guy on this, but I have this premonition that there's going to be a question in the first leaders debate about this, and they're all going to say nothing because nobody's really sure what to say. There's no easy button on this. This is very complex. I mean, in some ways, to Jessica's point, this is even more complex or less suited to Canada's strengths than the Syrian refugee crisis, where Canada announced we're going to host Syrian refugees. Boom. Uh, that was precedent setting. It was a very strong message from the Liberal Party. It had Harper on his heels trying to promise the same thing. I don't even remember what Tom Mulcair and the NDP did back then. But what made that feasible was that we were getting people who had fled Syria 
and were, were in UN refugee camps. And that was an orderly process. If we would have had to have Canada's military go in and extract people as refugees from Syria in the mess that Syria was, it would have been a colossal disaster as well. Well, just on that point, there's Afghan refugees sitting in India right now. They're in Kuwait. They're in Qatar, where we have Canadian military. Yeah, they are outside the country. So again, this goes back to the frustration point, because they've been sitting there for years trying to get processed to come here. There's people that have already privately sponsored them, and they're waiting patiently to the point where they're they're just throwing their arms up in the air. And like, what is it going to take to bring these people who are not do not have a good life as a result of what's happening in Afghanistan, where, hey, by the way, Canada operated militarily, right? Like, so there, there should be a duty to kind of follow up on this and provide that support. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, it is very complex. And, and the Syrian example is not apple to apple here comparison. There's a lot of differences. But I think, Fatima, to your, your question there on, you know, what are we doing for the communities that are here and kind of understanding, appreciating the dynamics of uh, what they're experiencing, the, kind of the, the traumatizing uh, videos that they're watching. I think that's a really important kind of human element to this that we've been forgetting uh, as we've been uh, taking in the news of, of what's going on. Uh, but then also, you know, with the rise of Taliban, I remember what happened, you know, after 9-11. Father, I'm sure you remember very vividly as well what that meant for like Islamophobia, what that meant for uh, hate crimes against turban wearing Sikhs. That's a conversation that's happening within our communities as well, as we're seeing images of, you know, the Taliban and seeing the way that, uh, you know, mainstream media is kind of treating the stories in some ways. There's a lot of other layers to this uh, that's going to impact us here in Canada that we have to be ready for. And, and, and I would love to see our leaders kind of speaking to proactively. So I guess the moral of this conversation is it's both a political and an institutional failure, right, Drew? Yes, uh, I think that's pretty safe to say in this case. And yeah, I'm just listening to everybody speaking. Yeah, I think Jessica Ron is is correct in that uh, given the sort of military failure um, of Canada and Afghanistan, yeah, Canada's role here should be to step up on the humanitarian front. Yeah, there is a lot we could be doing um, for a lot of people who we've already pledged to help. If we're talking about like what should be Canada's role in the world and where should we be pivoting, I think that's where we need to go. Can I, can I add one more thing, though? Back to Daskaran's point about Canada's failure. Canada left and wanted to forget about this for the last seven years. The Canadian public did. The Canadian government did. We had wanted to forget about it and close the door on this chapter in our history. Well, guess what? History comes back sometimes. <laughs> and it seems like nobody was ready for it. And we are reaping that right now. There's a person who lives in my building and his car plate is AF vet. Mm. So Afghanistan vet veteran. And he's got a, a poppy, right? A poppy on his uh, car plate as well. And uh, I met him in the parking garage just last week. And I asked him, I'm like, how are you doing? He's like, I'm angry. And then just walked away. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned the veteran because I think another part of the story is like, I think we've totally failed the people who did serve for Canada in Afghanistan in terms of like mm -hmm. the supports or lack of supports that have been in place for people who've come back. It's a fucking humanitarian disaster on literally all fronts. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. 
Madam Speaker, I got a point of order. What's your point of order, Jessica? When the NDP surge comes, can we make sure not to say orange crush this time around as, <laughs> as the media and instead use jugmentum or sensation? That's worse than orange crush. I can get behind jugmentum. It's got a nice ring to it. Doesn't roll off the tongue, jugmentum. Oh, you can use sensation. Like you, you have, I gave you two options okay. and people are still complaining. <laughs> if O'Toole becomes the momentum, what's his, uh, is it omentum? <laughs> omentum, I think maybe sounds best. You're diluting jugmentum and sensation. You're diluting it by trying to replicate it for Aaron O'Toole. Not a point of order, but I am interested in hearing how to phrase hypothetical surges. I'm totally going to use Jugmentum. You heard it here first. I don't even want royalties. Just tag me. That's it. Perfect. Done. I have a point of order, Madam Speaker. What's your point of order, Jason? I know it's it's kind of become a sport to pile onto the Green Party, but let's just say, for sake of argument, that uh, Anime Paul hits a bit of uh, Animania. <laughs> and there is a bit of popularity. I have a sense that they're going to really struggle if they're going to at all run a full slate of 338 candidates right now. They are so far behind that right now. I mean, I think on their website, I was looking this morning, they have like maybe a dozen or 14 candidates in Quebec where there are more than 75 Mm -hmm. ridings. It's pretty dismal. So if they have five or 6% in the national polls, which they have had uh, for the last few years in a lot of ridings, there might not be a place for that to go. Uh, so if the polls uh, are remain into September as tight as they are right now, it'll be quite curious to know where those what second choices uh, the green voters have, because I think in uh, quite a few uh, jurisdictions, they're not going to have that choice. I mean, that's also not a point of order, but it is a very valid concern that I also have because she hasn't left Toronto. Like, she's a federal leader and she hasn't left Toronto and we're on week two of the election. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What's your point of order, Drew? Do you think there's any way we can, like, get all the party leaders together and, like, meet with the governor general and just call, like, a mulligan on this election? Like, maybe we can just cancel it and just, like, postpone it for, like, later? Because, like, I don't think anybody's hurt is really in this. Like, I think, I'm sure, you know, the liberals would be very happy to cancel this election at this point. I don't think their hurt is in it either. Can we suggest that's a a feature, not a bug Mm. of this election? That I think the liberals wanted to call an election that was half in August, so nobody was paying attention. If you're a liberal candidate right now, you're hoping that your party at the central campaign has a has a new gear to kick it up when people start paying attention after Labor Day, mm. because if this is the trend line for for them, it does not look good. Um, no. But I think they almost wanted this to be a no attention, nothing really mattering uh, section of the election. No attention election. Hashtag. I think so. But like they're also doing really badly at the sort of like coasting part of this it's been it hasn't been good i don't know i don't think this is what they had in mind when they would do this sort of like sleepy election and just kind of like coast through nobody paying attention because of covid and various things it's like yeah i don't know anyway it's like how dare you guys (laughs) accuse trudeau of purposely wanting a sleepy election this election is about choice and the choice you want to take as a country. My favorite question is always, so if this is the most important election, what was the least important election of our lifetimes? Which one just didn't fucking matter? Yeah, actually. Guys, this is not a point of order, but in the name of sensation, let's let's keep trudging along. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. None of them are concerned that inflation is suddenly a problem in our country. We know people are worried about being able to afford a home. With Justin Trudeau in power, it hasn't gotten easier. I don't know. When I think about the biggest, most important economic policy this government, if re-elected, would move forward, you'll forgive me if I don't think about monetary policy. Uh, You'll understand that I think about families. The first week of the election had a lot of talk about affordability because life is just expensive AF right now. There's increasing inflation, which means we're spending more on groceries and gas. Housing, education, childcare all cost absurd amounts. The Canadian Real Estate Association said Canada's average national home price has risen a mind-boggling 32% between July 2019 and July 2020. That's crazy. Meanwhile, student debt is crushing people and wages are stagnating. Unfortunately, our leaders aren't talking about any of this on the campaign trail well or in a way that instills confidence in me that they have a plan to make life less expensive. Jagmeet Singh brought up housing unaffordability when he visited a family in Burnaby, B.C. He displayed a red upwards increasing graph in their backyard with no numbers on the access, because that really tells voters he understands the issue. Trudeau tripped over his feet when he said he was more concerned with families than with Canada's monetary policy, which is dumb because monetary policy does affect families. See the national home price drop, for example. By monetary policy, I think Trudeau means he'll leave it to Canada's banks to decide what to do with the 3.7% rate of inflation from July. That number is the highest it's been since 2011 because of many, many different factors. Supply chain shortages, remember the Suez Canal, rising oil prices and lumber costs, and now climate change, wildfires and droughts are hurting production. The resurgence of demand for goods as things open up has also contributed, which is to say nothing of the trillions of dollars the federal government has poured into the economy over the last year so we could survive the pandemic. But Trudeau didn't explain it like I have. And the conservatives pounced and attacked Trudeau for not caring about affordability and blamed the increase on prices on the liberals and the new Democrats. Jason, did Trudeau majorly F up when he said he wasn't concerned with Canada's monetary policy in the midst of an election campaign? If you're going to say something stupid like that, make sure it's in the first week of the campaign in August when not too many people are paying attention. That, that's maybe the best thing you can say about that, that quote-unquote gaffe. What that sounded like to me was that he was really answering not like a politician, but as a prime minister and as a respect responsible governor who didn't really think about how what he's saying sounded because it seemed like what he wanted to say or what he was trying to get across there was that 
it was a question from a Bloomberg reporter, I believe, about monetary policy, about interest rates and inflation targets. And he's correct that that's not something that a prime minister is supposed to concern himself with. But that's a pretty political tin ear for a liberal leader who's won two elections in a row to have. People are concerned about inflation. People are concerned about monetary policy. People who are deeply uh, indebted and uh, highly leveraged with mortgages are certainly concerned about interest rates as well. So he should have been uh, much more attuned to that. The conservatives were completely fair to pounce on that. They've been trying to uh, wag the affordability stick a fair bit. Mm -hmm. People are talking about how much more expensive everything is. What politicians are going to do with it, though, is a a whole different other question we're going to get into, I'm sure. Jessica, uh, Jason brings up an interesting point. The conservatives have been uh, bringing up affordability a lot. So he's tried to blame the increase on prices on Trudeau's pandemic overspending. Some of the monetary supports that Trudeau had pitched and executed at the beginning of the pandemic are now winding down, but prices have kept increasing. The conservatives have a plan, supposedly, that includes a benefit for seniors, a super EI program, whatever that is, and a savings account for gig workers. What's your assessment of the conservatives' pitch for making life more affordable again? I think the affordability question is one where the conservatives can actually play well uh, and kind of think outside the box and provide something new. You gave some examples, but even on housing, right, like on the affordable housing issue, uh, the conservatives are well positioned to kind of mark a space for themselves and provide solutions that kind of fit ideological frameworks or at least don't compromise ideological frameworks uh, while providing a, a legitimate wedge issue against liberals. Uh, and kind of, you know, maybe sidestepping here and talking about the housing proposal, uh, the, the accolades that the Conservatives got on their platform uh, have been high because, you know, they're providing a solution where I think, again, the, the Conservatives have a position on it that may actually be a solution. Like, you know, they, there's a bigger focus on supply side, for example, and uh, it plays well into like that suburban vote base as well. Uh, and it plays well to communities that uh, can then can swing their vote. Maybe they're saving that clip. You know, if I'm dumb, I'm saving that clip and I'm dropping it post Labor Day and put it in front of voters over and over again uh, because those policies are literally everything. And the impact it has on our on people's day to day lives is huge. And folks aren't policy wonks. They're not going to think, well, you know, that's a jurisdiction of the Bank of Canada or something else. Like, they don't care, right? They just want to hear solutions and how are you going to deal with it? They don't want bureaucratic nonsense. That's just not how people think. So, Drew, Jessica suggests that conservatives might be better poised to, you know, handle the affordability question. But we also have the Liberal Party that is banking that all the support he offered during the pandemic, all the four-letter acronyms, will address all the affordability concerns that Canadians have. Do we trust that what they're pitching now will actually make life affordable and will get them elected again? I think especially with sort of like subsidized childcare and um, other programs like that, I think I think they are angling on the idea both of like making things more affordable for people. The childcare question in particular, I think it's really interesting um, because we're kind of like repeating one of the policy debates from like the 2006 election where Paul Martin had sort of proposed like a childcare program and Stephen Harper's response was to offer like a tax credit instead, which is like, that's kind of what both liberals and conservatives are doing this time. Except in 2006, that played really well. The idea that you would sort of like issue these boutique tax credits and, you know, give families additional choice or whatever. Whereas now it seems like because of the pandemic and because of like the way that like everybody's work life and childcare balance has been totally thrown out of whack, 
there definitely seems to be more of like an appetite for material services um, provided to everybody. It's going to be interesting to see if like we have the exact same question we did 15 years ago, but we might get a totally different response from the electorate. That's assuming it actually does end up happening. Like a lot of the sort of like the liberals have made these deals with all the provinces like immediately before calling an election. I think partly as kind of uh, I don't want to say ransom, but kind of an incentive, <laughs> right? Like to get them reelected. If you know, like yeah, ten dollar childcare sounds great. You should totally vote liberal because otherwise, who knows what will happen? We haven't actually finalized anything yet. Well, I think we're all nerding out in this conversation because this matters, right? And and our political... <laughs> yes. No, it does. And we know, according to Angus Reid, that housing affordability and the deficit are two of Canadians' top five federal priorities. What should voters be looking for from federal parties when they announce their plans to mitigate these top issues? Like, what are the questions we should be asking that we're not getting answers for so far? We should be looking for the non-quick fix, which is problematic because in election, it's time for the quick fix. Think about Jagmeet Singh's promise for these up to $5,000 grants for renters. Yeah, or the Conservatives' magical 1 million homes over three years number. Such a perfect number. Yeah, these are very perfect, uh, nice-sounding round projects. I mean, $10 a day daycare is also this nice round number, too, but it's a bit more operable. Giving people more money for rent is great, but if that's—landlords can just take that cue and up their rent further. Yeah. It's an economic problem. A million homes sounds nice, but how are you going to do that? Where are they going to be? How much does NIMBYism— uh, in communities where you can intensify, build some mid-rise housing, uh, how's that going to stymie that? Are we just going to build all those houses, you know, just further, further high-rises in Toronto and Vancouver? Or are we going to sprawl out further and, uh, you know, gobble up some green space or green belts? The best solutions for, in terms of the housing crisis are ones that are not popular during elections. That is breaking the shackles of nimbyism, cutting the red tape that uh, very many suburban knights uh, call community consultation. Uh, The other one Mm -hmm. is cracking down on the speculation market and overall having the goal of depressing the housing market, turning, getting prices down. So many homeowners just want their real estate investment to go up and up and up and up and up. So actually having promising policy at this point to uh, depress things is going to go down. And we were talking earlier, you asked Drew about the conservative opportunity. I think there's a conservative risk here Mm -hmm. Um, because a lot of their traditional answers and their traditional solutions are also problematic this time. Traditionally, the conservative answer to rising costs is to cut taxes. Um, Well, that's going to exacerbate the deficit. Um, In the past, their answer to rising fuel prices has been to cut gas prices or cut diesel prices. Well, there's this thing called climate change, and even they are promising a carbon tax. And even their, their talk about the deficit they know is a booby trap. They are now promising to balance the budget on their ads, but they don't even have the fine print in 10 years. That's a much longer horizon than uh, than past conservative governments have promised. Usually they promise in four years or, you know, as soon as we get into government. But they know that people are more and more and more worried now about the consequences of balancing a budget rapidly. But they almost can't do some of those without uh, losing some election ground. Conservatives are, are often on the ground, at least at the municipal level, the ones that are leading the charge in the in, on Yimbyism, right? Uh, saying mm-hmm. yes to development. It's conservatives fighting a lot of those zoning regulations that are that are stifling that type of growth. You know, I, I'm sure every conservative loves to fight community consultation to some degree uh, <laughs> or, or red tape around that. Uh, but you know, conservatives are also community driven in, in some perspective. Now, a lot of this stuff is 
uh, us speculating a bit because the Liberals haven't put out their policy document yet. I like to assume it's because they haven't read the NDP platform yet and haven't decided exactly what they want to copy. Uh, and so once once they've done that process, I'm sure it's going to come out shortly. Uh, but uh, for now, the Conservatives have owned that and, and it's been noticed. Uh, and we'll see what they do post-Labor Day when everyone's actually paying attention. To zoom out a little bit, again, I'm old enough, sadly, to remember when we were all talking about what kind of economy we wanted on the other side of the pandemic, like what kind of economy mm. we wanted to rebuild. Um, and, and that's how the slogan Build Back Better came about, like emphasis on the better. Uh, so do we believe that any of the parties have the capacity or the competency to address issues of affordability? It is a bit it's surreal to think back like a year and a half ago and we're like, wow, this is a real transformative moment. Things could change. We might actually like recognize that we live in a society and try to like build something towards the common good. And then it turns out that like actually the main takeaway from the pandemic is like how hard everyone's going to work to make sure that like nothing changes at all. I don't know. I um, I remain skeptical. I haven't really seen any of the sort of like grand transformative visions that we're being promise that this election is actually about. It really just seems like which flavor of the status quo do you want to pick? There's so many moving parts that you have to consider so many things like together and it's all being considered in isolation, right? Like, yeah, sure. It's easy to link up with the construction industry and promise to build a million new homes in the suburbs. But then you start running into questions of like affordability of travel, car culture, climate change, all these other questions that like need to be considered. Um, and even like the affordability of new housing in the suburbs. I don't know for the most consequential election, apparently, of my lifetime. I'm not really seeing any major consequential choices being laid out in front of me. What's wild to think back to the start of the pandemic, the big anxiety was a housing price collapse. Even the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, the CMHC, was really bracing for a price drop. Of course, you know, nobody was really gaming out how things would change where people wanted to get bigger backyards. So they moved out to the burbs. It didn't matter. They could telecommute from Moncton or from Tilsonburg, Ontario, and work at home in Toronto. We didn't see how that wave of unaffordability would spread across the entire country, far from the GTA in greater Vancouver area, which is all to say, first of all, that's hard to predict where where things are going. I mean, you want to talk address affordability, you want to talk about affordability, but it's really hard to expect things to move in one certain way and, and rearrange your policy ship to do it, to do all address that. Um, when it turns out by the time you actually implement anything, you're fighting the last war and things have moved. Mm-hmm. Who knows where oil prices are going to go in the next uh, seven months, for example. Yeah, it's like Aaron O'Toole can't do anything to unstuck the Swiss Canal. Like there are, there are forces beyond our control <laughs> at this point. Well, not with that attitude. (laughs) As always, we're in the middle of an election, so there's so much going on. So we're going to have a very, very fast, rapid fire section. Jason, a major part of the country is still on fire and we're not really talking about it. Why? Climate change will be discussed in September. Jeskarin, what was worse? The Photoshop of Mississauga Lakeshore People's Party candidate Vahid Sefi onto the body of Prince William or Jagmeet Singh's housing graph? Jagmeet Singh's housing graph. Because that photo jo- Photoshop job was impeccable. That was amazing <laughs> Photoshop work. I respect that. Not having a Y or Y axis or X axis defined on your graph just tells me there's a red line going up a white sheet. <laughs> And Drew, uh, an election question. Oh boy. What are you watching on the campaign trail this week? What should we be looking out for? I'm looking forward to the Liberals finally releasing a policy document, but uh, yeah, I sort of suspect that they're going to read through the other ones and come up with a perfect triangulated response to both of those. 
And on that note, we're going to adjourn. That's the backbench. We'll be back next week. We've gone weekly for the election, and we hope you'll tune in. You can email us at backbench at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter, backbenchcast. If you like what you hear, please follow us, subscribe to us, rate us. Just wherever you listen to your podcast, click something. A star, a, a like, anything. I'm Fatma Sayed. You can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. Uh, Jason, where are you at? I am on Twitter at Markasoff and McLean's.ca. Well, I'll be writing a whole bunch more because we're doing that right now and that'll be fun. Jessica, and where can people find you? On Twitter at Jaskar and Sandu underscore are over at Bosnews.org. And Drew, where are you? Uh, I am regrettably on Twitter uh, at Drew Finland, like the name of the island, but with my name, um, or at the independent.ca, where you can find all about both the federal election and the St. John's City election, which are both happening at the same time because God hates me. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Outhorn. The music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening and see you next week.